How much do you know about pregnancy and alcohol? The reality may surprise you. Alcohol exposure while in the womb may cause fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in unborn children. It may lead to lifelong physical and or neurodevelopmental impairments such as problems with memory, attention, cause and effect reasoning, and difficulties in adapting to situations. For such an impactful disorder, it is rarely spoken about in the popular media. This podcast will take you behind the scenes to chat with the people who understand FASD. This is Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to our little podcast. My name is Kurt, your friendly neighborhood podcaster. Thank you for tuning in to the second part of the Parents and Carers special. We have a pair of awesome interviews for you today. First up is Nikki. Getting down to the nuts and bolts, how did you first hear about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder? Well, I have a foster child who's now 11 and I knew that his behavior wasn't you know okay and eventually long story eventually got to a psychiatrist who asked for his birthing records from the department took me nine months to get them to send them to the psychiatrist but the moment that they did I went into the next meeting with her and she handed me a book that was about FASD And that was the first time I'd ever heard of it. I haven't got children myself. And uh, that was my first exposure to it. And that's how I was told that that's what he has. And did you go through the whole process of diagnosis? Oh, yes. uh, He hasn't had brain scans, but he's been diagnosed by two psychiatrists. He has the facial features. He has the behaviour. And we've just completed a cognitive assessment which shows that he has the cognitive difficulties as well. So there's no doubt, and he's registered for it with the NDIS. Could you explain to our listeners what it's like to care for a child who's been diagnosed with FASD? Well, I guess the first word I'd use is exhausting. It's emotionally and physically exhausting. He, he's not a bad kid, and we've come a long way in his behaviour but he has enormous problems with impulse control, with anger management. He gets frustrated very easily. He can become violent, though the violence is becoming less now. I've had him for 11 years, so we're getting somewhere on that front. But property damage, so it's exhausting. He wakes up in the middle of the night. He gets night tremors. So that's the first thing. I guess the other thing is that it's all-consuming. I was trying to study a law degree and I had to give it up because his demands for attention were so great that I just could never get time to study. One of the problems with the the condition is that he looks and generally his behaviour is quite normal. You wouldn't know, most people wouldn't know there was anything wrong with him to look at him. He's very well uh, mannered, he speaks well, he's um, courteous, he's well coordinated, he doesn't look as if there's any problem. So most people around us don't get it. And all they will hear is the occasional hysterical outburst, screaming and unbelievably foul language, uh, threats of violence, sometimes actual violence. Neighbours sort of go, my God, what's happening there? And then they see him out in the yard and he looks normal. So that sort of uh, people don't understand what's happening. The other 
thing for me is I have enormous frustration myself because all the things that you want to do with a child we often can't do like he won't go out places you can't take him out to a party he gets overwhelmed by the volume of people you can't take him to the markets because the people are too great a crush and a crowd he often just wants to sit at home and be isolated and to himself. He can't play sport, even though he's physically quite adept. He can manage the skills, but he can't conceptualise the game. So he has great difficulty playing sports. And he also has a very severe delayed processing time in his brain so that when he's playing a sport, you know, the ball lands in front of him and it might take three seconds for his brain to register, I need to pick that ball up. And of course, that by then, the whole team's all over him and it's hopeless. So that's been a great regret for me because I would love to have seen him play sport. But on the positive, I get such satisfaction and such pride in him when I see him achieve things, which he regularly does, achieve things beyond the expectation you would have given his condition. And and he can do amazing things. He he came second recently in an art competition that was a big art competition and he, he came second in the under-18 segment of it against some pretty good competition. And, you know, that made me really, really proud of him. So that's, I guess that's how it is living with him. Oh, wow. I mean, what kind of art does he do? Uh, he's Aboriginal boy, so he does sort of a lot of uh, Aboriginal-oriented art, but it's he's, his fine motor skills are a bit compromised, as are many FASD children. So he can't really draw an image, but he's got a lovely sense of pattern and he's got a very good sense of colour. So we get him to draw patterns with different colours and tell a story by using those patterns and colours, and he's quite good at it. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I'm really proud of him. <laughs> yeah, not many people have that kind of skill. Well, I certainly don't. Yeah, me neither. And, uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it's lovely to see when he does something like that that is uh, reasonably exceptional, and yet he carries this enormous burden. So, yeah, I'm proud of him. Uh, just going back to something that you said, I was just rather curious about something, and I think maybe my listeners might be as well. In dealing with someone with FASD, how do you deal with, with the outbursts that he has? Sometimes well and sometimes badly. It can be very emotionally down-draining mm -hmm. uh, to deal with them. Yeah. They are often very abusive and, mm. as I say, violent and threatening. Yeah. Uh, not always, but often. We probably get a major outburst about once a week we used to get them two or three times a day so we're we're working on it so one of the ways i deal with it is i hang on to the positive that things are improving in the moment i have an attitude of complete calm i try very hard to understand that this is not personal no matter how personal it actually sounds that this is a little boy whose brain is out of control and he's frustrated and he's upset about something. So I try to operate on the basis that I try to calm him. I'll often sit, if I can sit with him, if he's not too physically aggressive, and just stroke him, stroke his back or something just to calm him. Sometimes just put my hand on him to calm him. 
Sometimes he'll go away to his room until he gets calm. Sometimes you have to ride the storm and just uh, let him have the space to yell and scream and carry on without reacting. He feeds off the reactions. So if you react to him and say, for goodness sake, stop that nonsense, be quiet, don't you threaten me, any of those sorts of reactions which you would normally have to someone being very aggressive to you, that just makes him worse and builds him up. So you've got to just keep very calm. This is how I have to deal with it. Very calm. I understand that you're really upset. What's the problem? How can we fix it? Sometimes you have to distract him. I know your game's not working on your PS4 properly. How about we go to the park and ride the scooter? You've got to try and find a way to bring him back down. But I don't leave it at that. Once he's settled down, we then talk again about the behaviour, about that it's not acceptable, and about what we can do to try to stop it or minimise it in the future. And we are always talking strategies for how to manage the behaviour. And he's aware of his problem, and so we always say that we're working on it together as a team to try to resolve the problem of his anger. And he goes into terrible self-hatred. He threatens to harm himself. He hates the way he behaves. So I then have to try to reassure him and make sure that he knows that he's loved and he will not be abandoned. It's very difficult with a foster child who's already been abandoned once. Uh, That's how I deal with it. It takes huge energy because I have to control my own emotions very strongly because my reaction, natural reaction, is to be upset, to be angry in return, to feel you're spoiling my day, you're stopping me doing what I want to do, I'm sick of this. You go through all those feelings all the time. And uh, sometimes I contain myself very well. Sometimes I get angry back. And of course, that never ends well. But we have to forgive ourselves and recognize that the carer is human as well. And we have emotions. And sometimes our our own needs will uh, come into it as well. But mostly, that's my strategy. Calm, lots of love, distraction, and understanding that he's going through a tough time. Wow. It sounds like you have a lot of patience. Not many people have that much patience or willpower kind of to sit through it and understand as well. I guess for me, there are big disadvantages to being an older parent. And my partner and I are both 70. I didn't take on raising a child consciously. I took him on for six weeks while they found a home for him. And he was never... Uh, taken and now I'm totally committed to raising him and giving him the best chance in life that I can give him and sometimes being older has the benefit of being more patient you've seen more of life maybe have better understanding of myself than when I was younger it does take great self-control I don't think I've ever done anything harder in my life than raising this child. And I don't think I've ever learnt more about myself than in the process of raising this child. So I see it that I'm being given a gift by him, that I'm getting enormous insights into my own capacities. And, you know, that's a gift. Yeah. So I think I have to try and keep that 
mindset, keep that yeah. uh, attitude. And I always have hope. Um, even when I look at him and I think it's hopeless, he's got no life before him, I have to f summon up the hope. I think hope is an enormous part of it, that I have hope and a belief that he can have a good life if I can help him now. Just trying to keep that mindset going, remind myself that he doesn't hate me, that he doesn't really want to hurt me. I have to remind myself that he has... He is a very, very damaged little boy, and it was not his fault. You know, this has been inflicted on him. Yeah. And I do get very angry with his birth mother at times, even though in my heart I know she too was a victim and it really wasn't her fault either. But you have to just hold that hope and that love in your heart, really. Yeah, I... I... I have to say, I'm blown away at the moment. I think you're amazing, Nikki. Honestly, Bottom I of my don't heart right think now. so. I think I, I'm just a person who loves her child. That's amazing <laughs> in itself. I think. <laughs> well, I feel, despite all of the difficulties and the disruption to my life and so on, I think, in the end of the day, I'm very lucky to have him in my life. My next question is. Is there more our listeners could be doing as individuals or we could be doing as a whole society, support carers or people with FASD? I believe so. I believe there's quite a lot can be done. At a social level, I believe we need to pressure our government to make the alcohol industry and the providers and producers more accountable for their product and the harm that it does. I think there needs to be more funding, probably from a levy on the sale of alcohol to provide funding for research for support for, because we don't understand the condition very well and there's not enough research in this country we don't understand how extensive it is some of the estimates are that it's one in 20 children are affected one in 20 children that means that every class in the country has a child with FASD in it. We just don't understand the implications of this and we're not doing enough in the prevention area, in my opinion. So that's, that's one area we can go politically, we can pressure our politicians. I am renowned for going to, I love going to the theatre when I get the chance. And the number of times I've seen someone who's clearly pregnant with a glass of wine in their hand, and I just bowl up to them and say, don't drink. <laughs> Do you know what you could be doing to your child? I think we need to be courageous in encouraging women who are pregnant or who are thinking about getting pregnant to stop drinking 100% total. So I think we can individually be more courageous about talking to people about it, about encouraging pregnant women to stop drinking altogether. I think we need to resource our schools more and have a better understanding, have our teachers better educated. Again, that's a political issue. We need more money in education to provide support to teachers to deal with these kids. And the really big one for me is we need respite. I've tried to explain how exhausting it is. And because we're 70, we don't have any family. We're, we don't have family that we can say, can you take him for a week? We live with it all the time, every day, unrelenting. And it's terribly important for carers, if they're going to be able to hold their own emotions together, keep the calmness, keep the love, to have a break from it, to get away from it, to be able to go and lead a normal life for a little while. So getting some respite care is 
really, really important. So what individuals can do is they can, and I'm a, as a foster carer I'm speaking, but I think it's true for children living with their birth families as well. And if they, you don't have other family to help you, I think it's really important to get this. So one thing people can do is they can approach their child protection service and say, look, I don't want to take a child on all the time, but maybe I could help out one weekend a month and take a child one weekend a month to give the family a break. That would be huge. That would be a huge thing. And the other thing I would suggest people can do who've got children is these children with FASD, they destroy their relationships through their impulse control and their anger. And they lose friends. So they make friends, but they lose them because the friends get upset with them, as kids do. But it wouldn't hurt for parents to be able to explain to their own children, look, little Johnny is actually a really nice little boy, but he's got this problem. He's been damaged. Maybe we could have a little bit of compassion. Maybe we could have a bit of forgiveness and understanding when he does something stupid because he's going to do silly things. And maybe parents could help their own children develop some compassion for these kids. So that's my thoughts on... I don't think they're awesome, to be honest. I, this <laughs> podcast has advocated from week one that you that no alcohol while pregnant or plan to get pregnant. That's always been yep. our motto here. Absolutely. That's, it's critical. And if anyone critical. could take, anyway, one lesson away from that podcast, this podcast is that. And what you're saying is great, I reckon. Respite. Yep. And uh, just yep. understanding, understanding and getting our politicians yep. to put some more money into researching because we don't know enough in, in Australia and we're such big That's drinkers, exactly. big drinkers right. that we and don't know how many people affect, have been affected by FASD. Yep. And make the alcohol companies a bit responsible. Yes. You know, we, we did that with, with gambling. Yep. We've made casinos and gambling outlets have to put money into a fund to help problem gamblers. We did it with tobacco. We mm. forced the, you know, uh, social change on tobacco, a dramatic social change Definitely, on smoking. Yeah. And I, we can do it on alcohol if mm. we have the will to do it. And the only way politicians get the will is because they think there's votes in it. Yeah, definitely. So, so if people get on the phone, write a letter, send an email and say to their politicians, we care about this. We need to stop this cycle of fetal alcohol syndrome and we have to stop it with the help and we've got to stop people drinking so much alcohol and maybe putting pressure on the companies, then maybe the politicians will act. My last question on my list is, do you have any advice that you'd like to give uh, carers uh, who are taking care of a child with FASD? Yeah, look, I hate to give advice because anyone with a child with FASD is doing it tough. Yeah. And in my opinion, there is no right way to handle it. I had have had advice from mental health professionals and so on. You can read books, you can get all this information, but you have to handle it so that you are true to yourself, to your own personality, to your own way of behaving and understanding of the child. The last interview for the Parents and Carers special is with April. How did you first hear about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder? 
Well, I was actually working in the Department of Education and part of my role was supporting and connecting with community agencies that can support the work that we do with schools and families. So it was an Aboriginal health service that I met with someone from there and he raised this conversation about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Back then, I didn't really know about it at all. And there was obviously a bit of work that was happening around that, providing awareness and doing information sharing and also support service stuff through the health system with families and those living with it. So that was very brief introduction. But it wasn't until 2014 when my great nephew, who I have fostered since he was a baby, was diagnosed with FASD, that my journey actually started and my learning began. And through the many connections that I made through no FASD uh, in particular, and that was the biggest connection probably that has helped me along this journey and that continues to be my support. So it's, yeah, it takes a long time to really get your head around it. There's so much about this condition that you need to understand. People seem to think that, oh, yeah, find out that it's related to alcohol consumption during pregnancy. But underlying those physical things, there is so much to the damage that's done that impacts on the lives of those living with it and their carers and families. And it's huge. Could you explain to our listeners what, what it's like to care for a child who has been diagnosed with FASD? Yeah, One of the things that has been really huge is the sensory processing disorder that my child has as as one of the identified conditions that he has. You see all of this stuff and you don't understand it, but once you go on this journey and you begin to understand what you're actually seeing and then what you need to do to be able to manage that but also support your child who's not able to live in our world and so then you have to consider all the adjustments that you have to make both in your home, in as many settings outside of the home that you possibly can. And I've been on this long journey and continue to do this for my child. For example, in the home environment, normal kids would have packed bedrooms with lots of coloured toys and, you know, you might have a beautiful bedroom suite and things on the wall and curtains and floor coverings. So... All of those things impact on a child with sensory processing disorder. So all of the things that makes a difference to him, you have to think about differently. And so I went through this process of identifying that and then having to um, adjust my home, make those accommodations and change the environment for him. So painting my whole house in calming colours was one, for example. Removing a lot of the clutter, a lot of the toys, a lot of the colours just minimising the amount of colours, the type of colours, so having more calming colours in clothing, in the bedroom suite, all of that sort of stuff, lighting as well. Um, Can I ask, um, what kind of sensory condition is it, Um, just for my listeners' benefit? So sensory Sensory, processing disorder. So what does that mean for for our listeners? Well, a child like this can't deal with a lot of normal things. So, for example... My other foster children play netball. When we go out into a busy environment like a netball stadium and grounds, and my girls played netball throughout summer and winter season, so night and day. So the environment's really busy with people, with noises, with the whistles blowing, lights in winter, 
all of those things impact on a child that has sensory processing disorder. And so when we went to netball, I'd have to take a chair for him and a device that he can sit on, uh, sit down and watch while this was all going on. We also had a blanket that he could cover himself over so that he could minimise the noise, the sounds to help him cope. And I didn't have a choice around that because I didn't have support networks for him to be able to stay with during those times. That's one thing. I have a very large shopping centre very close by me. So when we go to do our shopping as a family, he would only want to be there for a very limited time. He couldn't cope with that amount of busyness, noise, the lighting was huge. And he'd want to leave within about 15 to 20 minutes. So that's quite challenging. Driving in a car with a window down is another one he Mm. couldn't cope with. My girls would sit in the back, he would sit in the front, and if music was playing and they wanted to sing, he would have a bit of a meltdown because he couldn't cope with that. He can't filter out that background, and so he'd have uh, many meltdowns about that. So lots of those things that really impact the whole family. I can imagine. Mm. I mean, it must be difficult trying to get the world to understand that your, that your foster child has this condition. Yeah. And, and I imagine it must be very difficult. And imagine going to school, you know, if you had a big school ground, yeah, lots of classrooms, lots of kids, you change constantly. So that was a, a big thing for him as well. We had to work through a lot within his school setting to understand what were his triggers and what were the things that impacted on him. He would hear aeroplanes flying over the school or police fire engine sirens and he would get up and run out because those are things that interested him but he couldn't stop, couldn't concentrate. And so the school had to adjust the classroom setting for him. And they actually built a small classroom out of a larger classroom just to have one-on-one with him at one point because the classroom setting really didn't work for him very early on. And this was one of the adjustments that they made for him, but they also blocked out as much of the sounds as they could he would respond to another class walking out. He'd hear everyone traipsing past his room and so that would really distract him and the lighting. So they did quite a lot. But it took a lot of work for that to get to that point with the school and that's part of what I continue to do around supporting him is around working with all the people that come into contact with him and provide support services so that they they understand what the nature of his disability is and how it impacts him. My next question is, do you have any advice that you would like to give carers who are taking care of a child with FASD? First of all, I just want to say that learning all you can about FASD is just so important. And I don't think that you understand it once you've done a couple of things. You need to delve deeper. And that's that complexity of the condition that you really need to understand because those are the areas that has the biggest impact on people living with FASD. Things like dismaturity, you know, the socialising aspect, because even though my child's 14, developmentally, he's half his age. Socialising has always been one of his issues. He tends to hang with kids that are a lot younger than him. So that's that dismaturity stuff. So he connects better with them. Things like perseveration and transitions for him are really difficult. So in the perseveration area, he he tends to hang on to a lot of things that bother him. 
and he will continually raise this and challenge these things and if he feels that you haven't dealt with it in a way that settles his mind then it'll continue and he thinks he perceives things very differently so you've got to be very careful about how you impart information what you share so we've learned over time that what we take for granted and normal everyday things are very challenging situations for a child with FASD. So if we do something that doesn't include him, we have to keep that quiet. If he can't be involved, that could be an issue. And, you know, there could be very good reasons why he can't be involved in certain things in our lives. So it's a day-to-day, minute-by-minute managing, micromanaging environment, how you behave, how you respond to him, what you're doing, what information you share. It's huge. And that's the thing that the majority of people just don't understand that side of it. So understanding that's very important when you're taking care of a, of a child with FASD. There's, there's lots of things that I'm still learning about. And I have to rethink how I then manage things or understand things and then what that means for me caring for my child what adjustments I have to make further adjustments so the perseveration stuff I only learned about a couple of years ago and that's something that I share and talk about because computer games are an issue for my child so spending a lot of time and if you want to get him off a computer game that's really problematic and we've had huge meltdowns about that so minimizing that sort of stuff can be challenging. And as I say, he reads things differently. So what you say, you need to be very clear about how you share that information or you tell him something because he might read it very differently. So he hangs on to this stuff and that's that perseverating, not able to move forward. And he still thinks about things that happened years ago. It stays in his brain, even though memory is such a a big issue for these kids he still Mm. retains some of those things and they are very hard to challenge in his understanding or Mm. or to appease him in some way uh, give him enough information that he can accept it pretty difficult to to juggle all these things yeah so that learning is is just significant and i would say also that connecting with no fasd australia as the peak body for support and information resources you know the training i I, when i started the journey of connection with them i asked them to provide a um, training session to my school for the whole school staff which occurred after a couple of years and from that there's been a ripple effect with through education so further workshops have been presented for those groups I've also support that work by doing a presentation within NoFASD's presentations here in Adelaide. And that's my commitment to changing the way things are around FASD in Australia. About to ask, that kind of leads into my kind of next question. Mm-hmm. Is, is there more our listeners could be doing as individuals or as a whole society to support carers or people who have FASD? I would say... You know, the the awareness raising stuff is just so important. I think if there's anything that they could do along those lines, if you are a carer, then if you're able, is sharing that information broadly as much as you can. And that's something that I do. NoFASD sends me a lot of the resources, but I also do a lot of online research myself and come across articles that I find are just really powerful 
And one that I in particular share all the time is the perseveration presentation by Dr. Barry Stanley because it explains what it is, but then he talks about how it impacts on the individuals and he's done a bit of research around this stuff and he's identified from that research and the questions that he's asked. And it really hit home to me because it's around online stuff and computers and playing games in particular. And that's the thing that I had a real challenge with. And people don't understand that it's not as easy as, you know, taking it away and limiting the time. It isn't that easy. And so it was really powerful to read that information that he shared around how it impacts on the individual living with FASD. And he said some of those people reported that using alcohol, drugs, online gaming, it helps to calm the chaos, and these are his words, calm the chaos in their brain. So that just gives you another picture about what's going on. And when I think about my child who can't sit down for very long unless he's playing a game and engage in something for very long, uh, and that's the way he operates throughout the day, then you begin to understand, you know, some of the other ways that it affects them. So I share that stuff and I've had people telling me that to limit the time that he plays uh, games and, and time on devices. Well, that's easy said, but not easy done. And so I don't so much worry about that stuff as long as, you know, it's reasonable. I can see the other side of that as well. And it helps calm him. It's something that he can sit and play. And some of that's educational stuff as well. So, you know, you have to think about things differently. The other one that I want to share, I'm just trying to find it, is who has to change trying their hardest doing their best, what it's like to live with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And Nathan E. Ori is a psychologist in Canada, and wow. he has a lot of articles about behaviour in particular mm. and extreme behaviours and some um, good strategy stuff around how to deal with those um, circumstances. But I like this one in particular because it talks about identifying how you have to have a change in the way you think about behaviour. So it's not Seeing it as bad behaviour, it's about acknowledging that this is brain damage yeah. and that that is communication and that's the way that they respond. And so you have to adjust your whole thinking and the way that you manage and support people living with this. And I actually shared this with my child's school because, I, you know, education system as a whole is very hard to change something like this this condition is not yeah. well understood not well recognized and they don't see the huge complexity underneath and so what it means then to be able to support a child in this environment where the whole system is not supporting that child because they operate on very traditional values and systems oh yeah so, so that's a lot of the stuff that i try so i think mm. this article i think is just beautiful for that stuff um, a couple of the things that I did want to mention were some statements that I found on a couple of Facebook pages. And, you know, you were asking earlier what would, talking about what it's like living with a child with FASD. Yeah. And I found this article from Our Sacred Breath, uh, Shifting the Paradigm from Chaos to Calm, which is an Ontario FASD page, Living on the Edge. And it talks about as a caregiver, you're always on the edge and your life as a FASD parent is about living in a danger zone. Mm. Um, sometimes you're fearful that your world will come crashing down. Your life is fragile and anything can happen. There are great risks 
we take as caregivers and a great source of unpredictability. Life is a balancing act. And that really resonates with me because that's my life. Mm. And, you know, you, you just, you have good moments, but the majority of your time is, is very challenging. And it's isolating. It's, it can be very distressing. So, you know, you're living like this all the time, minute by minute. That's what I say to people. That's my life. And you're trying to provide a, an environment and a home and a life for a child like this when the whole world doesn't acknowledge, understand or the way the world operates. There's so much that needs to change. Um, I just wanted to say, uh, April, you're amazing. I just want to say, I mean, your, your child's very lucky to have you. Thank you. And you're raising, you're raising awareness as well as raising a child with FASD. It's it's very inspiring. And honestly, you had me tears when you're reading out that that little thing Those earlier. Statements, yeah. Yeah, and I don't. Know, it, it just it got me. It got me going. And I hope my listeners feel the same way. Once you're on, you know, if you have a child like this, it's just such a commitment. And people that are raising children with FASD are extraordinary people. Because 100%. of particular disability and what it means. I'm, I've been lucky to have really good people that have started me and supported me at the very beginning and continue to do that now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality. If you like this podcast episode, then please show your support by leaving a rating and a review on iTunes. Every little bit helps. Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality, was brought to you by Kurt Lewis and No FASD Australia. All rights reserved. For more information about FASD, then please go to www.nofasd.org.au.